Ben Lee in Quarantine, Episode 6. Hello, it's me, Max Quinn, and at this point, the podcast is out in the world, and it's been really lovely hearing and sharing in your comments and feedback, and I wanted to say, if this is something that you're enjoying, cool, tell someone. I think the best thing about being in on a cool secret is sharing it with somebody. So if you've been listening to the pod and finding it engaging, enjoyable, it's time to let someone else in. Personally, I'm having a great time talking to Ben. And today, we get to some listener feedback on episode three about new age spiritualities and fascist regimes. And Ben explains the politics of getting a song to number one. Plus, in what way are psychedelics like boxing? Stick around for that. On Ben Lee, In Quarantine. Hello, Ben. Hey, mate. Happy day seven. Day seven. Happy day seven. Hey, you're halfway through and it feels like you are in a really good place. I can see that you are playing around with Instagram filters at the moment. <laughs> yeah, Um. look, the whole time, it's so funny. Like, I felt bad because I think someone uh, assumed I, I was coming across as like sort of ingrateful or something about... Uh, being stuck in quarantine, I've been super grateful about it. Like, <laughs> whatever Australia's had to do to get daily COVID cases down to zero, I'm happy to comply yep. with. Yeah, we're just going to sit in this and go right along with it. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we've been, you know, we've been mildly stir-crazy, but we've also adapted. It's amazing how adaptable humans are. Mildly stir-crazy is the furthest that you have gotten, I think, on the continuum. I'm interested to see how this progresses over the course of the next week. It seems like uh, your mentions today on the internet might have been a bit lit up following on from episode three, Um, the conversation that we had about gurus being fascists. You and I are recording a little bit ahead of time, a little bit of the schedule of release. So I wanted to carve out a little bit of space here in case there's anything that you felt like you wanted to clarify. Uh, well, I was just sort of explaining this idea because this is sort of um, a bit of a radical idea, especially for anyone who's been involved in like spiritual communities or or sort of thought that there were like uh, that this idea about sort of hippies and new ages and spiritual people getting into the right wing mm. was sort of a new concept. Um, and I'd been watching, there's... um. There's a guy on Twitter you should probably follow, you'd probably like. I mean, it's pretty complex stuff called um, his at T. Afoyovsky, but he, um, I'll send it to you yeah. after. But he just, he does these great live streams because he was part of the original Cicada uh, sort of, um, you know, group of techie guys that ended up moving into becoming QAnon. Oh. And he does all this incredible work uncovering who all the players are and showing evidence and everything. And what he was showing this um, incredible, uh, incredible stuff connecting uh, Lisa Clapier, who's uh, one of the sort of voices in charge of QAnon, mm-hmm. with um, someone who was her mentor, uh, one of her spiritual teachers, which is this woman named Barbara Marks Hubbard. And um, Barbara Marks Hubbard uh, comes sort of, she's sort of connected back to theosophy and different sort of what what you'd think of as sort of fairly run-of-the-mill, like new-agey, occultist type stuff. But but the material that she was actually sharing, she's not alive anymore, was, um, was quite um, – the implications of it 
really explain the connection between New Age awakening and evolution and fascism. So a couple of the quotes that I was um, that I was sharing was one of them, she said, one-fourth of humanity must be eliminated from the social body. Christ. We are in charge of God's selection process for planet Earth. He selects, we destroy. We are the riders of the pale horse, death. And another one, she said, was... Um, we will use whatever means we must to make this act of destruction as quick and painless as possible to the one half of the world who are incapable of evolving. The selection process will be quick, right? So you understand the type of languages is, but how it connects to um, conspiracy theories and QAnon is she, she um, also made this personal pledge with a think tank she was a part of where she said, I take personal responsibility for generating evolutionary conspiracies as a part of my work. I will select and create conspiratorial mechanisms that will create and perform evolutionary breakthrough actions on behalf of people and planet. One people, one planet. So what I'm realizing is like much what we were talking about implicit within things like guru systems mm. and spiritual teachers is there's these sort of uh, elitist fascist tendencies. But even more than that, a lot of what... Um, what these people have been into, this kind of awakening and taking us to the next vibrational plane is really about um, actions that could wipe out those that are not necessary. Right. And these are the same these are the same kinds of people that found some kind of spiritual knowingness in the Holocaust. Yep. You know, they were like, well, it's the work of the universe and the unconscious and it's it's cleansing the way for new ideas. And, you know, so we see a very similar positioning in terms of how New Age culture has looked at COVID. It's almost like being those that believe it's even a thing are often, they're, they're very like Darwinian about it. Yeah, the strong um, will survive. They're like, well, the strong survive if you have, if, if your vibration is low enough to allow illness <laughs> in, which is we're also learning is a purely ableist concept because it, 100%. it denotes that all illness um, and disability comes from weakness. Yep. It's not, it doesn't make you innately weak or have failed in any spiritual way. But this is a in big no part of like the spiritual argument is that if you're sick, it's your fault. You know, um, Todd Haynes did a great movie, Safe that was about okay. these kind of ideas, I think he did in the early 90s, about how people looked at HIV. Um, and there was, I think, uh, people who are privileged and affluent, um, it's very, I think we talked about this in the, one of the first couple talks, about how it's very hard to face suffering. And one of the ways we justify it is saying, well, essentially, they must have asked for it at some level. Yeah, it has to be Essentially, yeah, nature must be doing what needs to be done and clearing out the week. And it's sad, but it's necessary. So anyway, I guess what I'm just trying to do is um, help reframe, in a sense, the part of culture that I feel most connected to that has fallen down this red pill hole are people that come from these conscious communities and, um, you know, spiritual communities and yoga communities. So I guess I'm just um, doing my part to challenge people to reframe the way they think about what is like there is literally every single yoga class every single vegetarian restaurant every you know kirtan and these these chanting they all talk about this awakening that's coming the end of the kali yuga and to actually bring that into practical terms what does that mean 
essentially what that means is uh, it's, it's a type of Darwinian survival of the fittest theory that can sometimes be aided by genocide, basically, um, yeah. I- intentionally or unintentionally. So I just think these are really important ideas for us to do, um, to be looking at right now. And in the way of saying, so, so where I ended that tweet thread, sorry, I'm a little bit all over the place, but... We'll link where, to it in the comments. Yeah, where I ended that tweet thread was saying, like, instead of asking, how did all these new ages become fascists in 2020? We should be asking, how is it it took until 2020 for us to realize that the new age movements were innately connected to fascism. And that's where I think my, that's the work I'm doing right now, unpacking that I was drawn to movements that actually run deeply against the grain of my own moral compass. Do you feel guilt? Yeah, I do. I do feel guilt. And I suppose all activism comes from the attempt to sleep okay at night yeah. in terms of our personal contribution. I mean, I know, um, did you see any of the vow, you know, the Nexium? Oh, thing? yeah. I don't know if you've seen that. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I know Mark and Bonnie, and I know that for them, their uh, attempts to rescue and to fight back against Keith Ranieri and get him in prison, a lot of it came from a guilt about how many people they brought into it. Um, right. So, so I see it as kind of... Um, it's in a way the natural state of affairs that as we progress, it's, it like happens with money too. Uh, people spend their lives chasing money and then they've got money and they, if they are on a sort of not in some arrested state but continue to mature, they generally start looking at charity, service, giving back in later parts of their life because they realize like they've been the beneficiary of an unjust system. And right. I mean, it's funny, my, my stepdaughter, she's 19 and she's, you know, like I think you have to be a communist now to be a teenager. That's the law. <laughs> but, um, but she has said very interesting things to me. Like she doesn't like, she has no issue with Bill Gates in the terms of um, she doesn't believe he's trying to microchip anybody. But she says the way as a society that we applaud billionaires who give back does not negate the fact that they should never have been allowed to accumulate those resources in the first place. That amount of wealth in the first place. And that giving back is, in a sense, the least they could do. This is the the Bernie Sanders of it all. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, there's a lot of very just interesting moral things that come up for you once you feel yourself moving to the other side of something that you can look back on and go, hmm, not sure I should have been involved in that system and and what that brings up in terms of the actions you want to take in the next part of your life. I was reading also that so much of this dogma, if we want to call it that, um, is predicated on this idea of doing whatever it takes. And I think that's a really dangerous idiom, especially because what we are talking about is some sort of like blend between socio-political and straight up genocide and that it is commonly applied to sports heroically that phrase you know she was going to do whatever it takes to win i wonder have you ever firstly have you ever operated in that mindset i mean somewhat like there was you know periods where say like when Catch My Disease was breaking and it's like, you know, you get this song that's kind of, it's got its own natural momentum, but then you have to work yeah. really hard in order to, like, it, it becomes, there's a game to be played in getting to number one, right? It's mm-hmm. like, 
it's like there's this thing in radio promotion about where you try and, like, if you have a proper hit, you basically try and close out the country, which means every single station is playing your song. And it yeah. doesn't happen to that many songs every year. But to get from 90% to 100, you got to shake a lot of hands. You got to do a lot of station IDs. You got to run a lot of mm-hmm. competitions and meet a lot of winners. And, to, you know, and obviously those things are not as, uh, morally compromising as some of the things that you have to do to acquire a billion dollars but <laughs> but you do still end up doing things that you don't feel necessarily totally aligned with and right. you stop questioning it because the goal getting that number 1 closing out the country getting every station playing your song it's like it's like actors have that with oscar nominations like mm. in a way you can get the nomination that can happen sort of organically but then there is a campaign. There are lunches you have to go to and dinners and you have to do the right late night appearances. You have to be dressed properly. You have to be respectful to the academy. I mean, this is the politics of success. Um, right. And it's very, you know, it's very interesting. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just you, you, you do, you inevitably bump up against what you initially felt comfortable with and the lines you initially, I mean, you know, um, it's funny because you move it when, at those moments where my career has crossed over into those pop sort of worlds. You find that um, your barometer of what's cool, it becomes like there's less people around you validating it. Wait, wait, explain to me what you mean by that. Well, like when you come from like punk rock or indie music or a scene, yep. you know, like you generally have, um, which I quite like, you have. Um, uh, it's it's just a high standard. You know what I mean? Mm. Like basically the way that scenes establish themselves as having power is that they hold everyone within them to very high standards. And to account. To accountability, exactly. Unless so, you, you know, happen to come from the pop punk world, in which case, you know what? No one has any accountability. Yeah, maybe, but there's still like, even within that, I'm sure there, I don't know enough about that scene, but there's still things that, are okay to do and not okay to do. Like, oh, absolutely. Um, the accountability of taste is um, is very yeah. different to, I think, what yeah. I was jousting at. No, exactly. And so I've sort of like, at sometimes I've pushed back against those things because I've seen them as too limiting. Mm. Um, so there's been like a joy in things like duetting with Mandy Moore or um, saying like, I want to have a hit because you know that's not cool, right? Yeah. But, that, but that's sort of, it is sort of fun in a way to push back, but... In general, even the way I did those things, they were with a knowing wink and a sense of what real art and what real culture is. And you go, okay, now I'm going to dance a little bit in the mainstream, but I'm going to try and be subversive and try and be interesting and, you know. Um, But when you get in that world, you find you're around more and more people that actually live in that world in total earnestness. So there are, I see. Yeah, and there's less accountability in the sense of like someone going, really, is that the band you want to take out supporting you? <laughs> I, wouldn't you rather give that opportunity to someone like younger and edgier and more interesting? Like, you know, and I think that's ultimately to me what marks, I think I probably could have done that better. I, I think someone like um, Courtney Barnett has done a great job of that. Yeah. Of, as she's gone into the mainstream, she kind of like took a scene with her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I thought I thought that was awesome. I think Nick Dalton did that with Half a Cow when he was in the Lemonheads. He brought all the bands he loved and all his friends' bands. But yeah. and you know, rap, rappers do that. Um, but 
but yeah, it's sort of like, I just think it's like hard to navigate, to keep a hold of your value system as you move into more mainstream and sort of rarefied airs, I guess. Something that I really admire about the current state of Australian music is that if you look at our biggest artists, our biggest international exports, let's say Courtney, Tame, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, all these artists who come from particular scenes, but then have used their platforms to elevate people around them and elevate artists that they love and do so unflinchingly. That to me is just like, that's punk rock, right? That's the coolest shit I, where I even agree. if you play in a psych band, yeah. fuck yeah. yeah, bring the Murlocs or whoever it is that you care about on tour with you. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the only thing is that it's become, it's actually become a little easier to do because niche niche culture has become more sustainable. It's like more protected in a sense because people can find each other. So the issues like we had before internet culture was that you were literally dependent on these monthly music magazines and mainstream radio mm. to get you across to people. And it was it's actually like much harder to bring a culture with you into those fields than it is when you're dealing with like Reddit AMAs and Instagram. And, you know, it's almost like now it, things are designed to carry culture in a way that they weren't before. The benefit that artists have now is being able to speak directly to their audience. Exactly. And the alliances become easier to manage. Like when I used to tour in the beginning, you'd have a band that was sort of like allies with you and you'd bump into them twice a year on mm. the road, once in Germany and once in Auckland. <laughs> Whereas um, now these alliances, cultural alliances, ideological alliances, they become much easier to maintain and much more dynamic and like collaborations are constantly happening via the internet. And I don't know, I find it, th there's an aspect that I'm quite envious of for artists starting now. Uh, I think they've, it's a very fertile landscape for community and holding onto your values in a sense. Absolutely. And my job for five of the last 10 years was to look after the community of artists and users at Triple J Unearthed. And one of the things that I've found in the artists that I've been fortunate enough to uh, have some hand in helping to foster and get off the ground and also then in being lucky enough to continue to sustain friendships with afterwards is exactly like you say, the ideological alignment that we naturally fall into. And to get to say to each other, come with me is a really, really fortunate thing that I don't think that I've had the probably the correct amount of gratitude for until you and I've just had this conversation right now. Yeah, it's really awesome. And I also wonder if the what some people perceive as the dark side of that is the knee-jerk reaction to everything an artist does because of online culture. Yeah. Um, and that can be hard to manage, I think, the idea that careers can be built and destroyed overnight. But I wonder if that sensitivity is not has not allowed artists to take much more seriously the responsibility of what they say and the ideas they share and the scene they represent and the other artists they carry because it's like you're going to get called out much quicker and much more harsher than you would have in another era. Too. Yeah, and the fearlessness that those artists have in doing it and in keeping each other in check is kind of beautiful. I think that yeah. that 
makes for a sustainable future within the communities for those artists because they are proliferating and to the extent I'll use a cliche that real can recognize real it's lovely yeah. to see these bigger bands starting to bring these baby bands on tour who they can, they can look through the opaque at and say hey look I can see that we're aligned and let's go yeah and that's always been like my you know I love collaboration and I love mm. community and I in some ways it's interesting like getting to know people like Shamir who's much younger than me and comes from a sort of post-internet relationship to music, I actually really relate to that headspace. I, I, I felt similarly. I remember when I first met Joel and Benji from Good Charlotte. Yeah. Because they had, they were, I don't know, whatever it was, like seven or eight years younger than me or 10 years younger. They had the attitude. I remember I first Benji said, our favorite artists are you, Morrissey, and Rancid. And I was like, I was like, when I was a teenager, you weren't allowed to have three favorite artists like that. Yeah. It was so tribal, you know? And and I I feel similarly with like a lot of the way that artists like Shamir and kind of, you know, these younger guys are relating to culture, it's it's very intuitive. It's like they if they resonate with a vibe, they resonate with a vibe. They're there's just a lot less kind of um there's a lot less tribalism in the same time as there's more accountability. So I don't know, I just find it really I find it really nice because I'm sort of between generations. Like a lot of the bands that I supported and am sort of considered a peer of, like, you know, Pavement and Built a Spill and Sebado and Sonic Youth, and those bands were all like at least 10 years older than me, if not right. 15 years. And they came out of hardcore and underground culture in America where the rules were, it's like there were so many rules. <laughs> there were so many rules about what's cool. You know? Right, right. And I have part of that in me, but I also have this, the next part, which is like the Spotify playlist fan who just sees it all as like, I can pick and choose and I can put it together in any way I want. And I don't need to just be indie rock. I can, you know, whatever it is. It's like I can like, I can like all this different stuff. And so I just feel a real, I felt a real liberation. Like Christian Lee Hudson is another um, friend of mine who's a younger artist too. Have you heard his album, Beginners? No, I haven't heard Christian Lee you, Hudson. You've got to check it out. Um, Phoebe Bridges produced it. It's, oh, cool. Um, it is, it, to me, it was like the best songwriting of ever on an album in 2020. Fuck it yeah. is a gorgeous album. And I okay. just, but it's cool. You know, I like I meet these artists and um, in some ways I relate more to the way they think about music than the way I did about my seniors. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I relate more to the, and perhaps that's just a headspace and perhaps part of staying healthy is always relating more to younger generations. Trying to, um, actively trying, yeah, trying to. to. I want to quickly ask you about another, if we can take um, whatever it takes as a yeah. mantra. Yeah, sorry, if, I went way off. Oh, hey, there. no, yeah. this is this is my yeah. bread and butter. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, the the other mantra, I, we, we'll link it in because it's, a, it's one that I think that you had, I am that I am. We were talking a yeah. little bit about ayahuasca yesterday and how it was instrumental in you breaking away from your Oh, career. yeah, we were going to talk about psychedelics today. Yeah. I forgot. You mentioned no, that. No, totally. What, yeah. what drew you yeah. to ayahuasca as your, like, psychedelic du jour? Well, I like them all. And, you know, remember I was telling you about the part of me that is interested in, like, 
Rambo, like systematic derangement of the senses. Like if you tell me this one's the craziest, that's kind of the one I want to mess with. Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> so, you know, now there's a lot of information about it, but when I got into it, it was a lot of like urban legend going around. It was called the death molecule DMT. It was, um, <laughs> it was said the closest thing you have to dying. I mean, all of these things, it's like you're speaking my language right now. Right. Um, so, so I, I don't know. I don't, it, it could have as easily been, I could have gotten involved in a deeper sense in mushrooms or LSD or, you know, one of these other, or ketamine. I don't know. There's different <laughs> communities and processes people go through. Horse tracks. Yeah, but for me, um, for me, I liked the, I like, I, it's weird. I was going to say I like natural, but that's not always true. But I'm not, I don't like the sort of, um, I, I just, I like the psychedelic experience. I like the experience that opens you up. I don't like things that constrict you. Even coffee, I see it as like opening me up. Like I come up with a lot of ideas after I pound a coffee. I'll shoot out five <laughs> tweets. I'll just like do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um it's a it's a stimulant in a in a, an entirely different way i so i'm scared of losing control with those things and i've i will say that i've never dabbled i've never engaged i think i'm too scared to lose control but wait of, even but like weed or something you've oh done. no of course okay yeah, yeah 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 to what degree to psychedelics do you have to surrender yourself well i mean it's like it's like talking about boxing. Okay. Um, like to which degree do you surrender yourself? I mean, it's sort of, you're <laughs> entitled to fight any way you want. Right. It's like, it's like dreaming. Is there a right or a wrong way to do it? I, I, I couldn't tell you, hey, here's the best way to dream. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Um, these are very intimate and personal processes that are not for everybody. Yeah. But clearly, I think with the exception of one, Every culture historically has a relationship to mind-altering plants. Yeah. Um, it's clearly a tool that's out there. Mm -hmm. And at certain points of some people's lives, they get called to explore it and check it out. Um, so, you know, I think there are some people and some moments that the battle, the struggle, the wrestling is, is the experience. Um, and that's okay. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure there's, I try not to be sort of dogmatic about it. Mm, mm, okay. How, so in your experience, do you, have you stayed with one foot in reality when you have used psychedelics? Well, at times. Okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's been, there's been times when I've been a, an observer and there's been times when I've been the observed <laughs> like, um there's been deeply it's it's like dreaming you know yeah. there's been there's been deeply there's been experiences that have been a full suspension of reality as i know it and some of those experiences have actually been the easiest because it's like it's like ripping a band-aid off sure if you sit there and do it really slowly it's can be really painful there's a great liberation. It's like an S&M thing almost probably. It's like there's a great liberation in being told, being taken, being shown, just like right. well, you don't have a choice in the matter. You just see. But, but you know, it's like a mixture. Like uh, I'm, I'm not a – I'll share one experience because uh, 
it seems relevant. I mean, not a big sharer of like psychedelic experiences, like telling about them, because I think they're, it's a little bit like talking about dreams. It can be sort of boring, actually, yeah. for other people. But there was one experience that comes to mind where I was standing outside these giant doors. This is all in my experience. I had my uh-huh. eyes closed. I was sitting. And I was trying everything I could do to get inside them, to get them to open. Everything. It's like, you know, when you've got um, a project you're working on and it's like you've got to shift, you've got to like pivot approaches like a million times to get the thing to have momentum. It was like that. It was like I would be like seductive to it. Mm. I would be, I would be petulant. (laughs) I would be frustrated. I would be, and I kept believing that what was needed was a type of, um, almost like psychic power or something like a meditative quality, like calm yourself down, focus. I kept thinking like that. And at a certain point I got so angry and indignant. I was like, I I was like, how dare these doors not open? And I stood in front of them and with all of the just rage I could muster, I said something to the effect of, I am a human being in this universe. I demand these doors open. And they opened. Mm. And on the other side was something very calm and very confident. And for me, what the lesson in that whole thing was, was similarly to what we were talking about, was not to pacify myself too much. That in pacifying ourselves, we dull a lot of our creative juice, you know? And I had a woman write to me today who's been listening to the podcast. Oh, lovely. And Yeah, and she said, um, she said, I'm curious how you feel about the experiences you had with the guru, the sort of like ecstatic experiences you had. In the sense as like, are they tainted now? Or do you believe they happened? Were right, they, okay. Was they hypnosis? Were they... You know, were they sleight of hand? Were they, Mm. what were they? Were they manipulation? And I said, I believe those experiences were real, but they're not what I'm looking for. And she said to me, well, what are you looking for? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you, but it's not that. I do Mm. not want, I do not want to be handed ecstatic experiences in a role-playing exercise with a superior. To me, that is just like, it's, it's, denigrating it's like it's degrading it's like it is not this is this thing i am a human i am a child of the universe i'm here i'm i'm made of stardust i'm you know all the all the all the cliches i demand these doors open i demand these doors open to me and i want answers and i felt like this when i was younger that i remember i would argue with the rabbis in my jewish school i would say okay these experiences happened to moses or abraham and now we read books about it. But I was like, that's not really good enough for me. I want them to happen to me. Yeah, I need to and see so, it. Yeah, I, want, I need to taste it. Mm-hmm. And what I've kind of come to realize is that, that that sort of true rebelliousness is, a, it's like a superpower. You know what I mean? It's a strength. Like I, I was fighting it instead of using it. And I obviously have used it. I've used it in my creativity. I've used it in my life. I've, I used it to 
make an incredible woman fall in love with me. <laughs> Not make, you know what I yeah, mean? But, but, to, yeah. but to romance her. And to, you know, and I, 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 I'm using it daily now of being like, I demand more out of this experience than what I'm being currently given. It's the force, Ben. It's the force, man. It's like you tap into it and it doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, I just like pitched. I think on the first day I was telling you I was pitching a theme song for a kid's thing. That's right, yeah. I, I just got an email going, they went in another direction. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the force does not always work, right? No. But the experience of it is enjoyable because I know I put that energy in. I know I, 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 I used the full power of my, um, my will you know, mm. and um, and I can accept the consequences of it if it doesn't succeed. Yeah. But it's certainly about leaning into, like, a type of rage. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a type of rage that I think people saw in me with that whole greatest Australian songwriter of all time. Like, mm. that was rageful. That was, that was literally, um, and, you know, that's, and Bernard Fanning, uh, to his credit, he um he saw that. He said, this is a case of the prodigal smurf poisoning the waters for the village. And he was right. Um, that was an act of an act of rage. But I think it's okay to act with rage. There's something spiritual about rage. Rage can and, be very fulfilling. Yeah, and if you don't, if you if you know it's in you and you know that the sense of justice is um it's like if you are intellectually, emotionally, and morally aligned with what you are fighting for, then I think it is okay to fight. Ben, we'll pick up the fight tomorrow. I have so many <laughs> right questions. On. Right on, man. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you later. Let's do it. Ben Lee in Quarantine is a collaboration between me, Max Quinn, and Ben Lee. I'm doing all the mixing and producing and editing and stuff. Sorry if you run into any pops or clicks or bung audio. I'm trying. Thank you to Ben. You can find him on the internet at Ben Lee Music. You can say hi to me at Max Quinn. We'll have another episode for you real soon. <laughs>